Welcome back to the One God Report. Bill Schlegel here. In this episode and in a couple of episodes to come, God willing, we will continue our discussion with Troy Salinger on the topic of the pre-incarnate appearances of the Son of God in the Old Testament, truth or myth. Our coming discussions are based on the third article that Troy wrote with the same title. I'll link to that article. And in this episode, we'll look at three supposed pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament. The first one is Exodus 3.14, the burning bush incident. And this is an important one because the deity of Christ, Trinitarian interpretation of John 8.58, where Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. They all seem to be convinced that Jesus is claiming to be the God who appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And yet, we have in the New Testament a commentary as to who it was that appeared in that burning bush incident, and it's not Jesus. Troy will draw our attention to the disciple Stephen's interpretation of that burning bush incident as described in the book of Acts chapter 7. And also the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 3 tells us who the God was who appeared in the burning bush. That incident will follow the pattern where the author of the scripture tells us that it is a messenger of Yahweh who appears. And that messenger represents Yahweh and speaks for Yahweh. So we can understand when the angel, the messenger of Yahweh, speaks, that is Yahweh speaking. And then also in this episode, we'll consider Melchizedek, this somewhat enigmatic figure who appears in the book of Genesis. Some Trinitarians have claimed that he is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. And then finally in this episode, we'll take a look at Daniel chapter 3. Some Trinitarians have claimed that the one like the Son of God or like the Son of the Gods in the burning fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was also a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. So let's take a look at these passages with Troy Salinger. So Troy, let's look back then at some of these Old Testament passages where the claim is by those who believe in the deity of Christ that a pre-incarnate Jesus appeared in the Old Testament. What are some of the passages where that is claimed to be the case? Well, one of the major ones is Exodus 3. And I, I wanted to point out, as you had mentioned before, that no New Testament author ever equates the angel of the Lord with a pre-incarnate son of God. And I think for the Trinitarian, though, the case is even worse than that. Not only does no author ever do that, but in the one passage in the New Testament that actually recounts a story from the Old Testament where the angel of the Lord appears, which is Exodus 3, what the author there says doesn't help the Trinitarian position. I'm referring to Acts chapter 7. So in Exodus 3 is the story of uh, the burning bush. And it says in Exodus 3, beginning in 
verse 2. It says, There the angel of Yahweh appeared to him, to Moses, in flames of fire from within a bush. So we have a clear statement here that the Moloch of Yahweh appeared to Moses in the flames of fire in the bush. Now, this is, again, you know, taken by many Trinitarian apologists and expositors as a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God. Again, this is based on the whole thing that the Father cannot be seen, but if Yahweh is appearing to somebody, then it must be uh, some other Yahweh that's distinct from the Father, and from this they deduce it's the Son. But as I said, this is the only incident in the Old Testament, appearance of the angel of the Lord, that is recounted in the New Testament. So I think it's important to turn over to Acts chapter 7, and we actually get a sort of a New Testament commentary on that passage. And this is in chapter 7 is where Stephen is before the Sanhedrin, just before they stone him to death, and he's, he's given a defense. And uh, basically, he recounts the history of Israel from the call of Abraham down to their day. And he gets to the part in the story. It's in Acts chapter 7, verse 30. He says, after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. So recounting this story, uh, Stephen simply says, an angel. In, in the Greek, it's, there's no definite article, so it's proper to translate it, and most versions do translate it, uh, as an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of the burning bush. When you look further down in verse 35, Stephen says, This is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Now, this fits perfectly in what we have been saying about uh, the concept of of agency. It says uh, that God sent Moses through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This is making a clear distinction between God and the angel. Stephen is not making some kind of metaphysical connection between God and the angel. He's, he's showing a clear distinction. God sent Moses through the angel. Many translations will say, uh, in, the, in the Greek, it actually says, by the hand of the angel, mm-hmm. uh, which is just a idiom which infers agency. To do something by the hand of someone else is to do something through the agency of another. So, God spoke to Moses and commissioned him for his task by the agency of the angel who appeared in the bush. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is a clear confirmation of what we've been saying about the concept of agency. And it gives no support whatsoever to the concept that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is a pre-incarnate son of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephen makes other statements in verse 53 of chapter 7 of Acts, where he speaks that they had received the law through angels. I believe Paul makes the same statement in Galatians, uh, and I believe in Hebrews. 
chapter two, that, that author makes the same statement that the law was was received through angels. Yeah, it was mediated. Oh, there's a sense of mediation there. It's mediated no. through angels. Yeah, given through angels. Right, but but when you go and you read the the story in Exodus where the law was given, there's no mention of angels. Mm -hmm. It's simply Yahweh, right? I mean, God mm. yep. is presented as giving the law. God is presented as speaking. You don't see anywhere in the text itself any mention of angels. Yet the New Testament authors are assuming this, right? That it was angels. So this would show that they had in their mind this concept of Semitic agency where because God cannot be seen, which the authors of the New Testament state plainly, uh, because God cannot be seen, when we have these uh, appearances of God or these theophanies in, in the uh, Old Testament, that uh, this is, in fact, agents of God who are representing God. Mm -hmm. It seems pretty clear. What also is interesting, Troy, is the Exodus 3.14 passage is the one that deity of Christ believers want to claim is Jesus because of John 8.58, where Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Right. And they say, oh, that I am, that's connecting to Exodus 3.14, where when God appeared to Moses in the bush, he said, I will be that which I will be. Some translations are, I am what I am. So they say, oh, see, Jesus is claiming to be the great I am. Yet right. here we have the disciple Stephen interpreting the appearance of that angel of the Lord entirely differently. Right. He could have here, if Stephen and the early church, the apostles, if they all believe what Trinitarians want us to believe, that is that the Son of God preexisted as God and was active in the Old Testament and was, in fact, appearing as the angel of the Lord, this would have been the perfect place uh, for Stephen to, to tell us that. Yep. Uh, but yep. instead, we get just the opposite, right? We just get it was just an angel mm -hmm. uh, that, God, that God did this through the agency of, of an angel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, also, Troy, even Peter in Acts chapter 3, you see, when God appeared to Moses through the angel in that burning bush and the angel is speaking for God, for yud he said, I am the God of Abraham, God of your fathers, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, Peter in Acts 3, when he's preaching, he says in Acts 3.13, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus, or his son, Jesus. So here, Peter says the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's the God who appeared to Moses in the burning bush. He has a son. It's actually a little, a little son. He has a son or a servant. Jesus. Jesus is not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus right, right. is the servant or the son of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it's amazing how mixed up the deity of Christ, Trinitarian interpretation of John 8.58 and Exodus 3.14 gets to be, really is. Right. It's a, it's a very superficial uh, interpretation. Once you, you look at all of these things that we're bringing out, it, it becomes quite clear 
that interpretation of the text just doesn't hold up. Mm -hmm. Troy, now in your article, you go through a couple of other pre-incarnate appearance claims. What's next? All right, well, one figure in the Old Testament that usually gets nominated as a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ is Melchizedek. I know a lot of people will be familiar with, with uh, this story, but uh, in Genesis 14, as Abraham was returning uh, from defeating the kings who had taken Lot and his family and other citizens of Sodom captive, you would get introduced abruptly in the story by this character named Melchizedek. It says in uh, Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20, quote, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of the heavens and earth. Blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Now, this is all that we know from the Old Testament record about Melchizedek, is that statement right there. That's all the information we're given in, in the Old Testament. We know that he was king of the city-state of Salem, which would later become Jerusalem. He was a priest of the Most High God. He met Abram and gave Abram and his servants returning from the battle, and he refreshed them with bread and wine, and then he pronounced a blessing, and then Abraham gave him a tithe. That's all the information we know. So... How do Trinitarians turn this into a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ? Well, it's really not from the Old Testament information about Melchizedek. It's from what we find in the book of Hebrews. The author in the book of Hebrews, what he says about Melchizedek is what is usually taken by Trinitarians or even by non-Trinitarians uh, who believe in the pre-existence of Christ, uh, that Melchizedek was indeed the Son of God. I neglected to mention that there is one other mention of Melchizedek in the Old Testament, and that is in Psalm 110, verse 4, where God swears an oath to the Davidic king, and he says, Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the manner of Melchizedek. And the author of Hebrews quotes that verse and builds a lot upon that. So, Let's go to Hebrews chapter 7, and let's see what the author of Hebrews says. So in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1, 1 through 3, we have this. He says, This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also, King of Salem means King of Peace. All right, so in those two verses, it sums up everything we read about Melchizedek in the Genesis 14 passage. He summed it up in those two verses. Then he goes on in verse 3, and he says, Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, Having been made like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. So this it's this one verse here, basically, that is taken to be an affirmation that Melchizedek was, in fact, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. 
Now, uh, I have to say that not all Trinitarians believe this. Yeah. I would assume, Troy, that there's many scholars that are going to say, no, 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 don't say that's Jesus, but go ahead. Correct. Uh, in fact, when I was a Trinitarian, I, I didn't hold that Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Mm. So my view has, you know, has not changed on, on that having become a biblical Trinitarian. So not all, you know, let's be fair, not all Trinitarians will say this, but, mm. but many do. Okay, so let's see if we can discern what the author of Hebrews is trying to get at here. So, like, like I said, in verses 1 to 2, he gives the exact information about what Jesus did that we saw in Genesis 14. But it's in verse 3, he tells us things about Melchizedek, which we would never have gotten from the Old Testament record. This idea that he's without father, without mother, without genealogy. None of that is stated in the Old Testament. So did Melchizedek not have a father and mother? Did he have no beginning of days and no end of life? And if these things are not recorded in the Old Testament, then from where did the author of Hebrews get this information? Well, the author of Hebrews is very Jewish, okay? Uh, he, he uses Jewish ways of interpreting Scripture. One Jewish way, uh, method of interpreting Scripture is, is to look at what a passage doesn't say and I think that's what the author of Hebrews is, is doing here. He's taken the fact that in, in most cases, when a person is introduced in scripture in the Old Testament, you get some kind of information about him, who his father was. Somebody, uh, a figure like this, Melchizedek, that you would at least expect to get some kind of background information. But the scripture is completely silent. And it's upon the silence of scripture that the author of Hebrews he implies things based on the silence of Scripture here. Troy, would, would it be fair to say that the writer of Hebrews, he's contrasting the priesthood of Jesus with the Arianic priesthood? And the, the priesthood of Aaron is passed down by generations. It's in, within the family, and we know that each priest is from that family. We know their genealogy. We know which one's before, which one's after. Melchizedek, the point the author is making here, is we don't know anything about a genealogy. That man was priest because God appointed him priest, and there's nobody else after him. There's nobody before him. It doesn't mean that he was eternal. It simply means the scripture doesn't record his genealogy Correct. In, in connection with the priesthood. So now the author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is similar. Jesus is not a priest because he's descended from the family of Aaron. Jesus is a priest because God, Yudhevavhe, made him a priest. That's Psalm 110, verse 4. Yeah. Like the manner of Melchizedek, who simply was appointed a priest by God, and, that, and basically his descendant didn't become a priest either. Same with Jesus. It's, he's like Melchizedek, or Mel Melchizedek is like Jesus. He is a priest because God made him one, not because he has a genealogical descent. Right. Based on the silence of Scripture, it's as if Melchizedek was without father and mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life. Mm -hmm. I don't think the author of Hebrews thought that Melchizedek didn't have a father or mother. He wasn't born or he didn't die. 
like the study Bible I have in front of me. Let me read the note from Hebrews 7, 3 from this study Bible. Without father or mother means that there was no record of Melchizedek's parents. He appears in the narrative without any account of his father or mother. In like manner, neither beginning of days nor end of life does not mean that he experienced neither birth nor death, but simply that the scriptures do not record them, unquote. Right. Uh, let me say one point about in many translations of the Bible, it says the order of Melchizedek. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a wrong translation because it actually is working against the argument of the author here. The order of Melchizedek, an order seems to imply like a group of people that are united in some kind of way. In this case, like a priestly order would denote a group of people who are functioning in the same priestly duties. It implies a succession within the order. Like as, as one priest dies, another steps up to take his place. Well, this is the exact opposite of what the author of Hebrews is trying to point out. There is no order of Melchizedek. I believe in the Hebrew, Psalm 110, and in the Greek that the author of Hebrews is writing in, the word there for order is best understood as after the manner of or in the similitude of. Yep. So it's not it's not about there's an order. There's the priesthood of G of the Son of God is in the likeness of the priesthood of Melchizedek. And this is confirmed later in Hebrews 7, verse 15 through 16. He says, and what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's, that's the whole that's the whole point right there. So yeah, that, those verses completely destroy the idea that Jesus is Melchizedek. Melchizedek is simply a paradigm, a parallel to Jesus. Here it says that another priest like Melchizedek appears. That's clear. That's not Melchizedek. Correct. And and again, I would say that his main point is to contrast the priesthood of Jesus with the priesthood of Aaron. Aaron's priesthood had to be passed on from one man generation to the next generation to the next generation. Yes. It's not the case with Jesus. Jesus is a priesthood that continues eternally forever because of the nature of his indestructible life. Exactly. So having said all of this, I, I think we can say with much confidence that Melchizedek is not a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God. And I think it would do well for Trinitarians to drop that as a proof text. Mm -hmm. Okay, another passage. What other passages do deity of Christ folks claim? Oh, that's Jesus back there in the Old Testament. Yeah, well, there's a little short one we can do. In Daniel chapter 3, the story of the three Hebrew children who were in Babylon, and they refused to bow before the image of King Nebuchadnezzar, and as a result, they were thrown into the fiery furnace. It's a very well-known story in, in the Old Testament. But after they are thrown into the fire, the king looks into the furnace, and he says, Lo, I see four men loose and walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Now, that was the King James Version that, that I read that out of. 
Uh, and I, I believe most modern translations today are going to say something quite different than that. But, you know, as I, over the years, being a Christian, I've heard many times sermons preached on this passage about the fiery furnace, usually from the King James Version. And the preacher never passed up the opportunity to let everybody know that that was Jesus uh, who was in the fiery furnace. Uh, mm. Because, I mean, after all, it says it was the Son of God, right? As it says in the King James Version. So this underscores really the problem with simply reading one's favorite English version and just accepting it at face value without studying beyond it. But if you check all available English versions, then we're going to see that the vast majority of them render this phrase as like a son of the gods. Uh huh. And this is true even of uh, really staunchly Trinitarian versions like the NIV, the ESV, the NASB. They all translate it like that, and there are others. So this should be understood as plural here, and the whole passage should read that he saw one that was like unto a son of the gods. Mm -hmm. uh, a son of the gods to a pagan king would just be referring to a divine-like being. It would have been very common in those days to use that phrase to refer to any kind of divine being. What he saw in the fire with the three Hebrews was simply one of God's angels sent to protect him. This is even explicitly stated in verse 28, Daniel 3, where it says, Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to thee, God, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants. So yep. once again, sorry, but there's no pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God in this passage. Yeah, interesting. Nebuchadnezzar even understood the concept of agency, right? Yes. The God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego sent his agent, his angel. Right. right, exactly. We'll stop there for now, and God willing, in our next episode, take a look at Joshua chapter 5, this appearance of the captain of the armies of Yahweh, who Joshua saw before the Israelites came into the promised land. Is this a pre-incarnate appearance? of Jesus in the Old Testament. And what about Genesis chapter 18 and 19? These three visitors, is one of them a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament? Yishma'u anavim v'yismachu, the humble will hear and rejoice. <laughs>